Welcome to another episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast. Now on Pantheon Podcast, go there, find your favorite uh, music podcast, which of course is the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast. Find your uh, second favorite podcast, Brian, because we are their favorite. That's what I just said. We're their favorite. So go find your second favorite. Um, What's going on, man? Uh, Well... I know this episode is going to come out later. Uh, we're recording on September 6th. I'm going to go see our recent podcast guest, Emily Wolf, play tonight in Columbus. So looking forward to that. What's going on with you? Ah, not too much, man. Uh, going to see them Dirty Roses next week on the 13th. Nice. Same place in Henriette, Minnesota, where Northwoods Jam is. So I'm really looking forward to that, seeing those guys for the second time. And, and they uh, keep getting better as a live man. They were really good, but I've seen them play once or twice every year for the last three years, and they just keep improving as a band. They are su- they are a band that you got to see live to appreciate for sure. Right, right. Yeah, and so, yeah, we got some things going on here, a couple, two, three things, you know. I mean, so how drunk do you have to be to get kicked out of Kid Rock's bar? How drunk do you have to be to get into Kid Rock's bar? <laughs> <laughs> Our buddy Steve Gorman posted that on Twitter. Some person was so drunk they got thrown out of Kid Rock's bar. Twice some, in the same night. That's astonishing. It's pretty sad. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's astonishing, it's but mostly sad. <laughs> it's but astonish- we're going to laugh at it it's anyway. It's astonishingly sad, Brian. So next thing, uh, I'm not a fan of Taylor Swift's music, but I think she's kind of a badass because I, I don't have all these like details perfectly, but it was like a she's doing like a tour movie or what is she doing where she's doing it paying it all for herself for her organization and whoever the companies were in Hollywood that wanted to get involved in it are kind of a bit hurt about that that they didn't get in on it she's like you know <laughs> buck the system she's she's great um she also was fighting about Ticketmaster and all the the things it took to get through tickets at mm-hmm. the same time too. So she definitely doesn't mind ruffling a few feathers because well, she's a juggernaut. I don't think there's a whole lot of people that can contend with her right now in terms of her and Harry Styles. I think maybe the, you know, maybe, maybe the it things going. That's interesting. But like, so where do you like, what genres Harry Styles consider? And like, I don't pop. He's, he's straight up pop. My daughter loves my daughter loves both of those artists. She's seen him play. What I will say is I respect and appreciate both of them. Um, Harry Styles does have some good pop songs overall. He's not really, but they're both talented and he's a hell of a performer, but 
I also wouldn't go see him in concert. I just pay for my daughter to do it. <laughs> so she now Taylor Swift only plays stadiums, right? Or does she play That's arenas? That's what she's doing right now. Yeah. Uh, yep. She came through Cincinnati, played Paul Brown Stadium where the Bengals play. I know she's been hitting the big, kind of like what the, the uh, stadium tour with like crew and Def Leppard's doing. She's yeah. kind of following that same path. And I'm trying to, you know, remember what, how many people actually just only play stadiums because my buddy Gene just saw, and his wife saw Pearl Jam, but they saw it at the XL Energy Center where the Minnesota Wild plays. So they they mm-hmm. play arenas. You know, Metallica plays stadiums only. Metallica, U2. Uh, Foo Fighters. Are they just Foo stadiums Fighters. now pretty much? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, you know, it's there's a handful, and it's mostly like legacy bands, like people that have been around a long time. So, I mean, I guess Taylor Swift and Harry Styles, I mean, they've been around. I mean, Harry Styles, I think, was in One Direction, which was like that popular boy band for a bit. But most people playing stadiums these days have been established artists for a long time. Wow. You know, and talking about established artists have been around a long time that probably kicked the door open for everybody else to play stadiums. When these guys come out with a new song, a new record, like everything else, it doesn't matter when it is, doesn't matter what's in fashion everybody kind of stops and just like can only pay attention to one thing. And that's, you know, we got a new stone song out today called angry, got a new record, October 20th. Uh, you know, whenever this happens, it's, it's quite the big deal. And, you know, I know we're going to do episode or two leading up to it and probably do an episode every release day, but uh, I like the new song. It's, it sounds like, uh, you know, the guitars are back up front where they should be in the sound. And it's been that way for a while, but I've been, predicting this to everybody this is gonna be the best stones album of original material since tattoo you which was 1981 what makes you think that well i think they're just getting back to where you know they've you know obviously like in the 80s and the 90s those kind of big stadium shows had the gigantic stage show and all there was just a lot of fancy kind of stuff and fanfare and, and and sensationalism and stuff and on the last few Stones tours, it's just them, their back line, and just the stage. There's not a whole lot of other distraction. And I think they're this it's maybe it's like a full circle thing, like getting back to where they started. You know, like remember, you know, they started out like as a their interpretation of blues, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, during the 80s, you know, you had all this, you know, emotional rescue and, and undercover and all that kind of stuff in, in the 80s. A lot of and of course a lot of people went down that path, you know. So yeah. I'm hoping that was my that, least favorite decade from the Stones, probably. <laughs> much, to be much, well, yeah, to some extent. But I mean, you know, every conversation we have kind of like is a good segue into the, you know, you're talking about the 80s. But uh, so we got a guest coming up and I'm going to do this long kind of intro in it that we probably didn't have time when we talked to our guests. But uh, it was around like the summer of 1986 and my buddy Don, Don Wyatt, who's a contributor to the page, he does. He, had, he comments all the time. Yeah, like he, he, uh, he had a 1974 Mustang to the glorified Pinto. Um, <laughs> sparkle Rad, he did like, he'd do like, you know, his own kind of pinstriping, like, and on the windows too. Across the front of the windshield, he had written Auto Blast. And uh, so that summer of 1986, there, you know, was another record from that same band where that song came from. And we listened to that record, that second record, over and over and over and over. And it was just like the absolutely the soundtrack to to 
the summer after sophomore year in high school, and we're talking about black and blue. First record was self-titled. The second record, Without Love. Was, you know, we've got Mr. Jamie St. James on as a guest. We're going to go in a deep dive on that record. Um, but I think, you know, that's their best record, you know, and, and other people have said the same. It certainly has, I think, their biggest radio or MTV hits off of it. Miss Mystery, Without Love, those are always on the radio. If you listen like the Hair Nation channel on Sirius XM, they're always on. They're great. Uh, they're catchy. And, you know, Brian, we always gravitate towards blues-based rock as it is. And it, those guys certainly have that. Sure. That's the kind of guitar player Tommy Thayer is, um, was and is. You know, he wasn't a big flashy kind of guitar player. And I always thought of them, Black and Blue, more of a, a hard rock band than, you know, kind of a, a metal band or a glam metal. Well, they're like in the Tesla band. range, right? Somewhere like around Tesla there, yeah. And, 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 you know. Kind of, um, kind of I, like LA Guns, like, you know, you know you're yes. wearing a shirt. You know, LA Guns, and we mentioned Junkyard and Cinderella, and they're in that camp. Yeah, and I'm always happy when we have an episode that you certainly love and are passionate about because this band meant so much to you. Is everybody's going to hear uh, when we in the con conversation with Jamie CJ? It's like I'm excited because you're excited. You yeah, know what and, I mean? And you know, I'm excited about everybody, but like I have to admit, well, I th the as long as we've been doing this. The first time we talked to Steve Gorman, I was a little bit like, you know, not yeah. like that, yeah. but I mean, like this kind of like You're nervous giddy, because giddy, you giddy. respect and reverence but with the artist. This time was totally like, I'm just like, oh, I'm talking to Jamie St. James. I can't believe that. <laughs> well, everybody's going to find out that it was a great conversation. And you didn't make a fool of yourself. So here we go. <laughs> What a great guy, man. I'm so glad I got to talk to him. That's just, it's just so nice. awesome. Full full circle moment. So you guys kick back, relax, and listen to our conversation with Jamie St. James from Black and Blue. segment of the podcast and usually i throw over to jason to, to introduce the guests that we told you about but i'm going to take this one and i think jason's pretty cool about but we got someone here we told you in the intro we did a long build up to that but uh this is really awesome for me this guy and his band is uh those you know specifically those first two records where the soundtrack of my like sophomore year in high school and you know, we just listen to him over and over and over. So we have the one and only Jamie St. James, lead singer from Black and Blue. How are you doing today, brother? Ha ha! I'm alive. I'm alive and well. <laughs> You're in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, I'm outside of Los Angeles. I'm uh, I'm east of L.A., uh, out by like the uh, San Bernardino area, under Mount Baldy. Oh, yeah. I like it out here. So I'm, right on. I'm, cool. I'm 30, 40 minutes east of, of L.A. proper. Yeah. How long you been out there? Oh, 15 years. 15 years? Okay, right on, right on. Well, first of all, we should thank Andrew Daly, our, our, our good friend, rock journalist, for making this all possible. Thank you, Andrew. This is huge for me. So 
you know, we want to talk mostly about the Without Love album and, uh, you know, maybe a little bit about your Cheap Trick uh, uh, tribute band. But I w- I'd like to start out, um, you know, and this is mostly, you know, I've read a lot about you guys over the years and kept up with stuff. And I've been basically re- referencing to Andrew's, you know, chats with you. But uh, you now this is like pre-Black and Blue, like you had been going out to L.A. since 1978. And, and do you think those were like scouting trips at all for you? You knew you were going to go there. You just... We're waiting, waiting for the right combination of guys. Yeah, for me, it definitely was that. Um, I was 16 years old when I, so it was actually 1976, the first time I went to LA. I know that because I just got my driver's license. And me and my friend Julian Raymond, who has done a lot of stuff musically since then, we were in a band together back then, but he ended up being like, vice president of A&R at Capitol Records. Uh, he d- just produced many things like stuff for Brian May and Queen, Cheap Trick. Uh, he's, he's produced a lot of stuff. Uh, he's uh, He was managing Glenn Campbell at the end of his career. So he went on to do a million things. He's a great guy and great, uh, great music, musical, great songwriter as well. But anyway, we got in a car. We borrowed a green Pinto station wagon. And we said, <laughs> oh, can man. we borrow your car for the weekend? And... We took it to L.A. He didn't know that, but we did. Um, from Portland? And, uh, you drove from Portland down to L.A.? From Portland to L.A. Uh, got my license, and that was my ticket to go. And I, uh, we drove down, and we knew we were going to go to the Starwood to see whatever band was there. That was the, one of the big clubs in L.A. back then. And there was, a, you know, we saw a lot of it. We saw yesterday and today. Uh, wow. It was either that trip or the trip after, you know, that turned into Y&T. But anyway... Yeah, definitely. We wanted to see what the scene was like down in L.A., down here, because I knew Portland was going to be tough. So, so. W- once you got like the the lineup, main lineup together before you guys left, you know, w- were you guys like cons- were you guys like the biggest band in Portland then? Or is that no, you guys are cons- no. OK, no, we weren't because we. When when we were playing the clubs, we would play a lot of original music, and they don't want they don't want that. We were loud, and our you know when we would play cover songs, you everybody's playing Foreigner and you know Cat Scratch Fever, Ted Nugent stuff like that. Well, when Black and Blues started playing, what was our? I mean, our our cover tune was Motorcycle Man, Saxon. <laughs> you know, we, we were playing heavy stuff. Um, we played Aerosmith and ACDC and that kind of thing. We, we didn't play all the hits. We played just stuff we liked. So anyway, I had been playing clubs since I was about 16, 17 years old. So Black and Blue didn't get together until 1981. So I was 21 by then. But we, were, we weren't the biggest band in Portland. We were just, we could get gigs, but not that much, okay. you know. Okay, right. So that was one of the reasons why I knew we had to leave. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Right. So it was already predetermined. You guys were going to go there. You had your lineup and you went there. And I've always, I've always tried to imagine that, that, you know, the sunset strip at the beginning, it was something that you just had to be there to see it. You probably can't really put it into words and it's maybe not an equal comparison, but I mean, I've always thought that like with certain events like Woodstock as well. So, you know, the sunset, uh, sunset strip, I just imagined, was it kind of like what you know las vegas boulevard is now but just with bands with musicians was it like a constant flow of well yeah you know because look i was there before i was down there before that right at the beginning of it you know mm-hmm. and even beforehand um but it, but when i got you know it's true the sun, sunset boulevard because of the rainbow and the roxy and the whiskey right there was an insane asylum because or in gazaris was there too so everybody would just the, all every telephone pole and metal pole, whatever it was, was plastered with flyers. Every, you would find a girl that, that would hand out your flyers. You would just print out flyers, and everybody's just trying to go get everybody to go to everybody's shows. Uh, and, and at two in the morning, the rainbow would close, the whiskey would be shut down, everything's shut down, but it still would go on until three, four in the morning. You know, cops would come by because it would flow out into Sunset Boulevard, and they'd have to, you know, to get out of here, everybody, you know, and the party just kept on going or whatever. But so, it is what people think it, it was, you know, it was, it was nuts. It was everybody dressed up crazy and doing their thing. And, and every band was out there, and the, you know, a thousand girls, you know, all of their studded bra tops or whatever the hell they were wearing, you know, it was fun. It would, it would seem like, you know, obviously like a lot of, a lot of people went out there and, and, you know, it <laughs> came back with shattered dreams or whatever. And, and maybe part of that was, was, you know, maybe they didn't have it, but isn't another part of it like, how soon do you guys realize that this is a business too? You know, you can talk about the parties and the chicks and all that, but is that a big yeah. part of it? Like guys just didn't realize like how much of your band is also a business. Well, let me tell you something. We weren't there for the party and the, for the, all that stuff. We were, we were right. owning our craft, our craft up in Portland. We were writing songs. We knew songwriting was the big deal. That's how I learned to play guitar essentially. So I could help write songs, you know, but I, Tommy Thayer and myself were pretty good at, at putting songs together. We were real good. So, we were constantly rehearsing, getting things together. We would take a couple of trips down. We would book shows in L.A. through Dee Dee Keel, who worked at the uh, Whiskey, and she hooked us up, got us booked at the Troubadour and the Whiskey, I think, our first run. We played, uh, we, but we'd, we'd book shows, come down from Portland, go back, and finally we ended up moving down to L.A. Um, but we knew it was, look, there was, there was a lot of good bands, 
um, and we were going to be one of them. And we was rehearsed constantly. Uh, we had a big band house. We had a management that was the first thing we got before anything. And he believed in us and kind of helped us. We, we, he rented us a house and we got rehearsal uh, rooms because we didn't have any money. We were, we, we first moved down, we slept on people's floors and on their couches, mm -hmm. just, to, just people we knew down here. So, um, yeah, we, we were, we were very, uh, determined. We would rehearse every day. We would write songs every day. We just wanted to be the best band we could. And, uh, we would play, you know, the occasional show along with, you know, guys like, you know, Rat and, uh, Motley Crue was playing the club still when we first came down. I saw him at the Troubadour, um, but they 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 grew they get, they rose pretty quick. Quiet Riot did as well, um, and we were the third band signed out of everybody. It was first for you know Motley Crue, Quiet Riot, the, uh, Black and Blue was third. Hey Jamie, during that time, kind of when you guys were breaking right there, did anybody stick out to you that you're that these guys are really going to ascend? Well, I knew Motley Crue would because uh, they they released that a single. Um, I forget what was on it, Toast of the Town and something else, but. Uh, I heard I got the single and I and I knew I had seen him and I knew Motley Crue was going to do something and I I, I liked him a lot. Uh, the first record I had the first version of it on Le Leather Records. Um, Amazing. Yeah, I, and so I knew they were going to break. Um, I always liked Rat a lot. Good mm -hmm. songs. They were friends. I mean, I we the first house we slept in, Robin Crosby was sleeping in the same house, uh, and uh, we got we became friends with Juan Crucier uh, uh, for uh, we'd loan him our our bass gear. I think we had better gear than him, or he maybe his got ripped <laughs> off or something. I don't know. I'll ask him. But uh, we were, you know, I knew Rat was good. Uh, as as time went on, eventually around the '83, I, a Wasp was happening, and I thought, God damn, look at these guys! A Wasp was pretty cool. Um, Bunch of went, handsome lads. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Blackie was a big fan of Black and Blue. He came to all our yeah. shows, and yeah. after parties, we would have we would always have a party at a hotel next door to like the Tube or whatever, you know, down the street, and he would always be there. But uh, you know, it was it was good. It was good. There was a lot of good bands playing, and uh, in that time period, that's what the that was the best time for me. Um, a lot of bands started, tons of bands started coming to LA after '84, '85. But in the early days, there wasn't as many, and we were all good, actually. You know, I liked Armored Saint a lot. Armored Saint was yeah. cool. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of good bands. Yeah. And like I said, that would seem like uh, maybe later on. Was there a point where you're going, this is getting to be too many people here? This is getting too many musicians and and overcrowded? Yeah. Or... yeah, in the later 80s, there was so many bands playing. I couldn't keep track of them. You know, there was just a ton of them because that's what happens, you know. And everybody, you know, could smell L.A. from anywhere in America. So, yeah, that's where I'm going to get a record deal. And everybody came <laughs> in. And, you know, you know, the good bands did got got there. But uh, there was so many bands that didn't make it, you know, because it was a floodgate. And, and uh, yeah. you know, the record companies, they're going to look for anything. Anything successful, they're going to look for something that's exactly like that. You know, and uh, so it got saturated by the end. For yeah, sure. yeah. I guess I'm just I'm guessing that a lot of bands maybe thought it was going to happen by osmosis, but you guys probably, know. and maybe some of them did, but they probably lasted a week at you know some shitty label. You know? Right. So before we move on, you got any crazy story from the Starwood? <laughs> oh God, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I was there constantly back in the day. Uh, I can't remember uh, no anything that really stand. I mean, okay, probably the craziest thing for me was. Uh, it later on, I mean, probably in the 90s, early 90s, I think, I ended up uh, running into Sam Kinison and I partied with Sam <laughs> Kinison at his wow. hotel room 
for a day or two. <laughs> so he probably couldn't keep up with Sam. Nobody could. Oh my God, he was insane, you know. And he and he liked to talk, man. But yeah, it was a that was a nutty uh, night. I'll never forget that. But uh, yes, he was a great guy. It was amazing. He just walked up and said, "Who's in charge of this gang?" I go, "I did." I did. <laughs> he says, "You're coming with me. Gather everybody up. We're going to party." <laughs> I was, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> That was pretty nuts, but uh, there's a lot of crazy nights at the start with you. It's fun place. I mean, uh, I mean, <laughs> Rainbow. Was talking about the start with earlier. Rainbow, yeah, fun place. Right on. So we want to talk to you mostly about the Without Love record because, okay, to me, like I, it was such a tremendous growth, and I'd like to, you know, if I can, like we want to possibly do the deepest, most highly detailed deep dive into Without Love, and from, you know, obviously at some point, you know, you're making the second record and right before it's a twinkle in your eye, if we can start from there. Like, when did these songs start appearing? Some of the songs, okay, it probably immediately after we finished the first record. We just, we're in a real writing mode and we wanted to just get ahead of the game. So, uh, I think we just started, as soon as we got back from the Aerosmith tour, because on the for the first record, we toured with Aerosmith. It was a Back in the Saddle tour when Joe Perry and Brad Whitford came back and it was the original band again. And we toured a, a, you know, for a couple of two or three months with Aerosmith. And right when we got back from that, we did some occasional shows here and there. I think we went out with Dio for a little bit. and uh, We did a few shows here and there, but we were locked ourselves away to write again. So we started writing songs and we had to make a decision what we were going to do, uh, who we wanted to work with, you know, and with Dieter, it was fun, but we had to go to Germany and it was a lot of, you know, Dieter is an, it was, is an amazing guy, but we thought we might want him to try something different. So really we, while writing songs, we were researching who we would want to use. And um, I think our light man, Patrick Young's brother, Steve Young brought up, uh, brought up Bruce Fairburn uh, because he was listening to lover boy. He says, this guy, this, these guys might have something. So we listened to that. And uh, we said, you know, this this might be a great combination. Him and Bob Rock, the record company, we, we went to John Collagner at a record company and said, we want to use this Bruce Fairburn guy. And he says, yeah, and Bob Rock. You got to have Bob Rock with him. So we we that's what we just kind of decided. And it wasn't a lot of people using him then. Uh, that was uh, kind of a, 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 weird, a weird choice in a way. And uh, we just ended up, uh, they, we sent them demos, they accepted. So that was the beginning of what we knew, what we were going to go to Canada, to Little Mountain, and to actually work with this dream team before it was a dream team. Mike Fraser, who went on to be a huge engineer, did a many big records, was our second engineer. So it was a dream team back then. Uh, after John Bon Jovi heard that record, he used that same team for Slippery When Wet. So we were right. Anyway, so we would just write songs. And... Uh, I don't know. The first one of the first songs we had written was we called it Rock and Roll Animals. And we played it in Japan when we went to Japan to play. But when we got back and we took it to Canada, they changed it to rock. We changed it to Rockin' on Heaven's Door. And so that was probably one of the first songs that we wrote for that record. How did that change come about? Is that just all you guys just. I think Bruce Fairburn didn't like animals. He wanted to see. Can you change? Hmm. Can you say something else? You know, <laughs> and then I. I came up with, yeah, we were kind of, I was back then me and Tommy were twisted titles around, you know, like nature of the beach, nature of the beast, you know, we, mm -hmm. we said the nature of the beach made it a beach thing. And I thought rocking on heaven's door, we'll try that, you know? And, uh, I just had a knocking on heaven's door. Right, so right. I, uh, 
I just thought that was a cool title. And, and uh, that's the way we went with it. But Bruce instigated it. He said, can you try to change that for me, Jamie? And whenever I had some kind of lyric that was really mean and uh, you know, just was kind of raw, he'd want to brighten it up a little bit. So... So do you that was, like did that you think that sound kind of evolved influenced by by Bruce as well and Bob Rock or did you know Well the, those guys pushed you know the, look the record company told those guys we want to get we want to get these guys on the radio of course that's what record companies do so we right. had that battle of back and forth you know we want to be black and blue but we're going to you know but we want to you know these guys are pushing us in a direction to get us on the radio because that's they want success you know and honestly so do we here's the thing Tommy and I can write any kind of a song. We can write a song that sounds like a Motorhead if we want, and we can write a song that sounds like Cheap Trick. So we are very versatile, and that's why our our records have so many different styles on them. It's all rock, but we I figured I, I never wanted to hold back. If it's a good song, it's a good song. I don't care, you know. And a good song to me had a great riff. It was and, and had great melody and, and, and some good lyrics, you know. So when we went down that road, it was easy for us to try to write some stuff that had a little bit more, I'm just going to use its bad word, but commercial sound, you know. Mm -hmm. I always love uh, Nature of the Beach. I remember having a crush on this <laughs> girl in high school that was like two grades above me and like, that's never going to happen. So that song was always kind of my soundtrack to that that feeling. That's a great song. I mean, I, <laughs> I really liked, I love the way that song came out because that was pretty raw. You know the the riff. I can't remember. Me and Tommy put together the riff. Dad, 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 And it, it, with time, we got done with it up in Little Mountain in the studio. Man, that thing came alive. I just went, wow. This, this really, what a, what a song. I thought mm -hmm. it was great. I mean, Juan Cruce uh, from Rat told me he says anybody that can write a song like Nature of Beach is a great band in my book. You know, mm -hmm. it was it was a good. It came out really well. It, it is really a kind of a. To me, it's a summer record because of a buddy of mine in the same grade, like that was the summer after our sophomore year in high school that we listened to Without Love over and over and over and over and cruising up and down the strip in the town we lived in trying to get chicks and stuff. So that was just a great, like I said, Miss Mystery, Nature of the Beach. It was just such a great, great soundtrack to, to our teenage years. An interesting note, there's another song on the record called Swing Time. Right. And Swing Time was not called Swing Time. We wrote that was another first one that we wrote, and it was called uh, "Blame It on the Neighborhood." That's what it was called, and we took it to Gaffin and John Kalodner is like, "I love this song. I hate the title. Uh, we love the title, but he said that we can't. We're not calling it that. See, this is what record companies do to you. You know, well, we 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 got three hundred thousand dollars. We're going to put into this record, so you change the title. You know." Or we're not, you know, or you're in trouble, you know, we're not, we're, we're, why should we give you the money if you don't do, do what we say? You know, it was just, that was a feeling I got, you know, but so we said, okay, so we changed the title, but it was, it was called Blame It on the Neighborhood. And that was another one that was very early on in the songwriting process for that record. And when I, when we got there, Bruce was, you know, we got to change it. You know, the record company won't, they won't put it on the record. It's not going on the record called that. What do you do? You know? Yeah. So I came up with a swing time idea, you know, and I started putting all these big band phrases in there and stuff, thinking I could try to make it into something, you know, uh, and I kept, I tried to, it, it, it sounded like swing time because the, the music, dude, I thought, okay, big band kind of stuff could, you know, you know, see you later alligator, I say that kind of thing, you know, so, <laughs> you know, it, it, that, that's was, that was an early on, on the song. Uh, 
I had been working in my head on a song called Miss Mystery before we were going up there. And I, I had the chorus. I was singing the chorus in my head exactly how it is on the record. Because mm -hmm. um, I, I, I thought Miss Mystery, I was, I was coming up, I was playing around. I always played with titles and I was thinking Mi Mr. Something. And I go, uh, Mr. Miss, Miss, Misdemeanor. No, that sucks. Miss, and I said, Miss Mystery. And so when we got up there, we got Bruce Fairburn hooked us up with uh, Jim Valance, who's an amazing songwriter, writes all the stuff for, with Brian Adams, all the early Brian Adams hits and that thing. So we went to his house and he's like, you know, we, they were playing around with stuff and they go, does anybody, you, you guys got any ideas? And Tommy didn't even know it. I said, I got an idea. It's called Miss Mystery. And I, I started singing it, the chorus, exactly how it is on the record. And Tommy just started playing the chords. And, and, and within two minutes, uh, Jim just said, that's what we're working on right there. You know? So that was how that song was developed in his uh, basement studio up in Canada. Yeah, so like played I said, all the time. All the time, Brian. I hear it all the time. Yeah. Like I said, that's the message I got in that song was like, like I said, having a crush on a girl that's just completely out of reach. It's like, that's never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it just made sense to me, this mystery, you know, and I, here you are so far from me, you know, you want, you want this girl, but you, it's just not happening, you know, so <laughs> I, I can relate to that, right? I can relate to it really well, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and Bruce said, what do you say? Why are you saying here you are so far from me? What do you mean? I go, come on, it's old Susanna. Uh, it, it was so hot, I froze to death. Susanna, don't you guys? I, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's cool, Bruce. And he goes, oh, I get it. You know, he's Canadian. He maybe he never heard that song. I don't know. Do you think those songs like that where you're yearning for somebody but you don't obtain them resonates more more with people than the songs where you you get what you're after? I think so. I think people like to dwell on that kind of thing, you know? I, I think so. Uh, you know, I love, uh, 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 you know, stuff like that. I, I do. I do, too. So yeah, I think people connect to it pretty easily. I, I agree with you. It seems like it's almost more nostalgic in that case. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah, that was a no-brainer once that was put together. That was a solid song we worked quite a bit on. Um, I believe we had some of the – there's some little – you can hear keyboards in that. We would never wanted to go heavy on keyboards because we're not a keyboard band, but there is some keys in there that was done by – the keyboard player from Loverboy, Doug was his <laughs> name, I think. And a, a no, also there was some keys done by uh, David Page and Picaro from Toto. They came in. Oh, and shit. Helped. Wow. Yeah. Uh, some of the weird sounds like, I think it's Without Love, the song. That's, is his name Steve Picaro? The, the keyboard player, Picaro. Mm -hmm. He's doing all these <laughs> weird yeah. sounds. These Toto guys came and killed it, you know. Dude. They were just really cool stuff. The Toto guys were like the band of the 70s and 80s where, like, I'm talking the band, like, Levon Helm band. Like, they were initially backing and did all this stuff for people, and then people didn't realize how freaking good musicians they were on their like own. That, they were so cool. On their own. Yeah, man. We were, we were lucky crap. to get them. They happened to be playing in Vancouver, Canada, and Bob Rock got a hold of them and said, can you come in and do some work with these guys? And it was so cool to get them. Yeah. Damn. Before we got on, Jason and I were talking about the drum sound of the record. Oh. And then I, I had said uh, earlier today, I'd heard uh, Wherever I May Roam. And it's like, 
that drum sound and the drum sound on on Doctor Feelgood. Was did Bob Rock specifically work on that drum sound on on Without Love or was? No, no, Bob Rock did it. He created that drum sound and worked on it for two or three days. Uh, the key was we set the drums up in the main room. There's a main, there used to be, I don't know if it's still there, but there was a, the big studio room. And then there's a huge room next door that's just a big empty concrete room. And he put plywood up and did all this stuff and directed the sound and put mics out in that big empty concrete room. And they blended tones together. It took two or three days to get it right, but hell of a drum sound. And uh, yeah, that was that was the first thing we did. And I was involved with all that because I always helped Pete. I, I used to be a drummer, so I would tune Pete's drums. I'd help him. We didn't bring a drum tuner and I would do it or you know, me and Pete would work on it together. Um, we got dialed in that sound really good. And that's all Bob Rock. It's all Bob Rock and Little Mountain Studio. Combined, you get a killer sound, man. Me. To me, the test for music is listening in in the car. And when I listen to Without Love in the car, it's just right there. The drums are just fucking just right there. I just love it. Yeah, they're insanely good. I mean, that's what Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora heard. They told me both of those guys to my face. uh, That's why we use those guys was your we put your cassette on and it blew away our last CD, the sound. So, yeah, that that. It, look, it ended up everybody used those guys. Aerosmith, I mean, it went, it went nuts up there. So, But we were really kind of the first ones to bring that. Look, after Bon Jovi did it with Slippery When Wet, who's not going to use them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. But I guess for you guys, you helped Bob Rock and all those guys tune their sound to what they took with them later on. And this that record, yeah. your record sounds incredible. Yeah, we had, you know, the, the good news was we had – Geffen did put the money into us to, to be able to do that. So forever grateful for that because I now have that album for the rest of my life that I, you know, that's part of my life. So I'm very grateful. You know, we could have took a ton of money and put it in the bank. You know, we spent every penny on that thing and I'm still glad we did it. You know, it's a lot of money, um, but it was, it was worth it. Cause we were always that way. Everything goes back into the, to the to the to black and blue let's make it the best we can so i still love that record too it's my favorite black and blue record mm-hmm. i think the only mistake was releasing this mystery first could have released something else to not be such a shock from a change from the first album uh, did, did you guys have a debate over that with a record company of, of which single should be released like were you guys lobbying for something else but it didn't matter what we said. They were going to do what they wanted to do. We had no friggin' say in it, which is really sad and weird, but that's that's what it is. And uh, I would not have released that song first. Although I love the song, I would have released anything other than that. There was There's a song called, the song called Without Love, the title track, could have even been better. Mm-hmm. Because it had a more, it, more, it was a more, more guitar, a little bit, you know, a little rougher than Miss Mystery. Uh, it, Miss Mystery is almost a ballad, you know? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think it was a shock from the hold on to 18 and the auto blast, you know? Well, the formula too, especially in the eighties with hard rock and metal was first song is a, is a hard song, you know, kind of get your attention. The second song comes the ballad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the way it went usually. And I'm surprised they did it that way. They just released mistress, miss mystery. And that is it, you know, it's sink or swim on that song, which it did pretty well. I mean, I yeah. know I, I used to look at the R and R report and stuff and we were getting a ton of airplay mtv was playing it and all that stuff but it, it just i think it, it could have i think it would, we would have been better served to release something else first but you know that's the way that goes now just speaking about without love the song that was a, that that came together completely different than 
a usual black and blue song. Jim Valance wrote all that music. He just brought a tape in and said, I got this music. What do you, can, can you do something with it? So I took it and wrote without love, wrote the, the lyrics and melodies and everything. Uh, so that's just a Jim Valance and me song. And uh, I, I, I think it came out pretty, pretty good. Just uh, oh, some hook. Yeah, I mean, they the guys loved it. I mean, Fairburn just loved it. You know, it's like, man, wow. I can hear it in it. my head right now when you're <laughs> talking because when you say, I can hear <laughs> without love, like I can just hear, it's in my head. Still. Yeah, yeah. Well, they Bruce loved it, and they were like, man, we got another Jim. You know, and you know, I can't remember the other earlier songs. I think Stop the Lightning came on along fairly early because we would write these songs, take them to Geffen, and they would send them to Bruce and Bob. Um, so they could get prepared and yeah, it's a great experience. So much fun, you know, fun time in my life for sure. See, to hear those songs come alive like they did, uh, got to thrill. How do you reconcile that as a young band and you know, you have to concede to the record company and you know, your instincts are probably right. (laughs) Yeah, it's terrible because most, well, listen, we were with a guy who does have good instincts, John Kolodner. (laughs) You know, he signed ACDC, he signed Foreigner, he knows he knows what he's hearing. But uh, I think even he had trouble fighting for us with at Geffen. The higher ups there would make decisions and they didn't know what they were talking about. So we had a good guy on our side, but still decisions were made above him. And I don't know, it's just kind of strange. Why wouldn't you trust the guys you signed? I mean, we're, we're creating this sound, you know? We know what we're doing, but... It's just the way it is. It's the sad part about getting a record deal, you know? And look, I wouldn't have changed anything because now I think things are really screwed, you know? I mean, if there is no record company for, to nope. speak up for a band like us. It doesn't exist the way we did it. The way we got successful, the way we, quote, made it. That's, you know, anything else you want to know about Without Love album? Well, yeah, just a couple more things. Like, you know, it's my favorite Black and Blue record as well. And because it, it's so, it's so, it's you guys, but it's, I think it's your record that's got the most stylistic different things on it. I mean, I'd love strange things. Like how did that, how did that yeah. come out? That's like. That is a killer song. That is uh, one of my favorite black and blue songs. And uh, that was a thing that Tommy was playing around with those chords. If I remember right. And I could hear the sound of it and I go, Oh man, I want to do kind of an Alice Cooper sounding thing with this or something, you know, and strange things was, I don't know how, what I came, I came up with the lyrics just kind of with Alice Cooper in mind, you know, and the coolest thing about that song, well, it, it just came together and I'm the one that screamed for, I want cellos. And that's a duh, 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 in there. I forced that and nobody heard it. And finally Bob Rock goes, I, I know what he's doing. I get it. I get it now. And then it's a strange, it's a strange, the queen thing. I said, pan it, pan it. We got to do queen. And, Bruce was like, going, what are we doing here? And Bob Rock got it. He says, I know what he's trying to do. Just let him do it. And uh, so that was, that, that's one of my favorite songs. Uh, I think the, one of the cool things is we went to another studio in, in Canada to just do work on vocals. And we would record layers and layers of vocals and then on another tape and then fly it in because it, you could conserve tracks that way, you know? So we'd have a half inch tape that we just layered a bunch of vocals on. So that's cool. I could do all that queen stuff. That's all me. This is a ton of me, you know, with those backgrounds. And we, we flew it into the, to where it needed to be at the end of the song. And then the song stopped. And then 
this old man on a piano started singing. It was an accident. If you listen to the song at the very end, there's a goal, and I go, what the hell is that? And we're all just listening, and it fades out exactly like it does on the record. I said, do not lose that. Save that. That is perfect. Don't touch it. And, and, and it, was, it was like the weirdest thing that happened. It was a guy that used to pay him money to go into this littler studio and record himself playing piano and singing. He's singing Danny Boy. Oh, Danny Boy. And, and it's at the end of Strange Things. I go, what could, what could top that song off better than that? It was an accident. The guy doesn't even know he's on a record. But my buddy and I, we'd always, we couldn't figure out if that was the end of Strange Things or the beginning of this last song I want to talk about. As the All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast, Two Wrongs Don't Make It Love, that's a blues hey. song. How does that yeah. make it? How does that get, I love that song, man. That uh, That is a great song. And that was something that I think uh, Tommy kind of instigated that one. And uh, we just, yeah, it's it's a different sounding song for Black and Blue. And some people think it's like, like their favorite song. I know a couple of people that go, I love that song. Yeah, it's a great song. And it was, uh, I think, the last one we brought to the table. And it made the cut, you know. Uh, yeah, different for us in a way. But I thought it was really good. It's, it, it's cool. When uh it's one of those ones we one of these days we need to throw it in the live set because we haven't played Ooh. that. I don't ever yeah. played it live. Isn't that, isn't that not a reflection of Tommy's playing? Because when you guys were in LA, it seems like Tommy's the only guy that's not doing the acrobatics. You know, he's Tommy like a blues based player. Completely. Tommy was influenced by Eric Clapton, Ace Freely, uh, Ronnie Montrose. He's he's an old school player, you know, and he he plays a blue. Listen, Tommy Thayer is one of the best guitarists I've ever played with. Let me tell you something. The guy is a rhythm machine. Uh, he 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 is he is so perfect in the studio and live. I mean, he can just he's very on the spot. He doesn't waver. He's rock solid. You can count on him anytime. And he's not the flashy Eddie Van Halen type guitarist. Never was. He, but he's solid blues guy, you know. Uh, and yeah, for me, that's that's. That's what made Black and Blue a little different because he wasn't trying to do all that stuff. And he shouldn't have, you know. He didn't want to change what he was. Right on. Well, we, we want to talk just a little bit about your Cheap Trick tribute band. How did how did that come about? And is that, it seems like it's like that's almost kind of the thing where that's really helping, you know, pay the bills or, you know, like I have a friend uh, in, in North Dakota here farther west and she she does shows, but she says, you, you got to have a theme and they'll do like a, a British invasion night. Now they're doing like an Almond Brothers kind of thing. So is that is that like, how did you cheap tri tribute band come about? Well, honestly, the reason why I do it, why I can, why, why I will even do it is to for my voice, because I don't sing enough. Black and Blue doesn't play as much as we used to. I mean, we, we, we still have shows. You know, we still fly out and do occasional festival, the cruises, Monsters of Rock cruises we do every year. We're doing it again next year in 2024. And we'll do a club run here and there if it's right, you know. But uh, I don't sing enough. So I sing in this cheap trick cover. It's called A Cheaper Trick. And it, it yeah, sure, I make we make okay money. It's kind of crazy. But a lot of bands make decent money at that. But I do it not just for the money. I do it because I get to sing more i have to sing because i took a year off once maybe during the covid thing i didn't sing at all and i lost my voice was not strong it's just like working out or something yeah, if, yeah. You, if you don't keep singing it goes away and i didn't have the stamina i didn't have the strength in my voice so you know i 
that's that's something that I have to keep doing. Also, uh, a year ago, I quit drinking, and that helped a lot too. Right no more all to mess up my voice. So I'm in the top of my game. Actually, I'm 63, and I can sing better than ever. But I'm lucky; I can still sing everything I wrote in Black and Blue in the original key, no problem. Even the high high stuff, nasty, nasty, get wise, rise, all that stuff. I can sing it all. So, but by by doing these tribute that tribute thing, it keeps my voice in shape. I heard Roger Daltrey say once, I'm afraid to stop singing because I'm afraid if I do, it'll never come back. And he's right. Yeah. At our age. Yeah. At his, his age. Shit, I need his age is old him. <laughs> well, <laughs> like our age too, like you know, I'm almost 50. And if I were to get out of shape, it would be a lot harder to get back into shape working out now than if, yeah. you know, if I stopped. And it's the same thing, like you said, exactly with your voice. You don't know or how long it's going to take you to get back when you get older. Yeah, it's true. And I found it out and I, it, it took me a while to get back and I, now I'm, I'm fine, but it took a lot of rehearsals. And I go, man, after I do a two hour rehearsals and an hour in, I'm going, I don't know if I can keep singing. It, it was like, you know, so I have to do a 90 minute set or something, you know, so I had to be, you got to keep your voice in shape. So that's, that's great for me. I uh, mean, I just did a rehearsal uh, last night for three hours. I say, you know, it's, it's awesome. Right on. Well, Jason, is at that time of the show. Jamie, do you have time for a lightning round? Shoot me. Let's go. All right. We're going to go, and we're going to ask you some stupid questions. So <laughs> don't be offended. All right. What is what is one of the – what is your favorite tour that you're ever on? Aerosmith. Is there anything song-wise that stood out to you that they had performed that just really got you? Yeah. Uh, that one last child last child thank you you're welcome oh i thought see i thought you're i didn't know you were looking for the answer i thought you were just thinking it might have been moving on too it kind of sounded like you're doing moving on on the first record no that was it was last child they would go into that thing and God, the groove on that. They were so yep. great. Also, they opened up with uh, Back in the South. It's a great song. Ah, yeah. fuck, man. I, Aerosmith was one of my first love bands. I love those guys. Yeah. Yeah, I saw Aerosmith. Here's a thing for you, but real quick. Yeah. I'm on tour with Aerosmith, and I'm talking to Steven Tyler, and I said, listen, I saw you guys, I think it was 73 or 74, open for Three Dog Night. And he goes, whoa, that was the first time we were ever on the West Coast. And you were there, and now you're opening for me? I go, you're damn right I am. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Blown away by that. I got 13. <laughs> they were my first real concert, 1987. I went and saw them, a permanent vacation tour with Guns N' Roses opening. Nice. Yeah. Right? Before Great everybody band. knew who they were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's one band kind of from your from your from when you guys got started there that you were surprised never really gained a foothold? Black and blue. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I Brian and I all, well obviously we're doing a southern rock and blues based podcast, but we always gravitated towards the bluesier blues influenced uh, rock bands at the time. You know, Junkyard, you guys, Cinderella. You know, you name it. Like those are those were always what we dug. Tesla. Oh yeah, Tesla, Tesla, uh, great band. They were on Geffen, uh, and uh, I had those guys, great guys. Uh, no, I know all those guys, and what a great bunch of guys, and great band, great band. All right, you said you quit drinking. So, what's a guilty pleasure snack, treat, drink, or something for you these days? 
Oh, a guilty snack is gonna be ice cream and popsicles. <laughs> oh yeah, you got a favorite flavor or favorite shop? Uh, I I eat Tillamook ice cream like it's going out of style. Every night I gotta have a little bit of it. I don't eat too That's much. Portland, right? That's Portland. That's or Oregon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Throw down for Oregon there. Yeah, yeah, Tillamook ice cream. Just ask my wife. That's all I eat. <laughs> it is good stuff. I do. They have a. Are they just dairy? Do they have a brewery as well? Oh, uh, they make cheese. cheese. I know that's that, what it is. Yeah, cheese is big cheese too. But anyway, I, I just that's I kind of guilty about it. I like to have a little ice cream. I don't I don't need a lot, but a little bit every night. I just have to have some. So yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, man. You know, you gotta have a little something, something. <laughs> Let's live pizza and ice cream. <laughs> all all the foundations to you know the the food pyramid, pizza and ice cream. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a um, wild rocker. I eat Tillamook ice cream. <laughs> it's it's amazing these days. We talked we talked to anybody from up and coming artists to well established, you know, like you guys, and how the scenes and everybody does. Everybody's a lot more healthy. It's a different world these days. Yeah, yeah. Look, I I did all that stuff. I I done everything you could want to do back when I was young. That's that that guy is still alive, so I'm gonna keep him that way. <laughs> I, we want you to keep them that way um are you more of a reader or like a streamer of of movies and tv probably more of a streamer uh i love streaming the you know, like anybody else the netflix stuff you know or or whatever uh i i like i like to find a good one that i can i mean i just recently so everybody kept telling me to watch walking dead i never did and i finally caught a hold of it and i watched the whole thing from start to finish you know yeah, I like I like you know that kind of stuff. My wife and I. Yeah. Get you like the horror stuff. I do. I like horror stuff, you know. But I never did a lot of that in the in my past. So I mean, recently I just, well, a, about a year ago, two years ago, I watched the whole Sopranos thing. I never had seen it. Great, great deal. Said so that was fun for me. I did the same thing with uh, Breaking Bad. I never saw it, and I just. It's already done, so I just watched the whole thing. Every it took me a week, couple weeks, you know. But I, I love doing that. Yeah, I don't read a lot. I'm dyslexic, and my eyes are bad, so reading is 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 painful to me. So I just, yeah, I don't. Yeah. What kind of stuff do you like best? So, so you're talking about streaming. You know, you've got some sci-fi, horror, some mm -hmm. drama. Do you do? You, I mean, do you gravitate towards anything specifically? You just like whatever's whatever's good. I think whatever's good, and I do like sci-fi horror stuff a lot, you know. But if it's good, it's good. I mean, I, I'm I'm one of those guys. I loved Ozark, you know, great, well done, you know. I mean, I I love that. And it's funny, my the drummer in A Cheaper Trick edited the Ozark. He's an editor for that. He he, he oh, tells me, yeah, his name's Kevin Valentine, great drummer. He's he's in Donnie Iris band, and he played on Cinderella record. He played on couple Kiss records. He's a great drummer. Yeah. Yeah, what I like about streaming and a lot of these series now are the fact that, one, they don't overdo the season. So you're doing 8, 10, 12 episodes. And then they don't have so many seasons, too, where it gets redundant and ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, they can tell a cohesive, tight story and be done with it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's the, kind of the way they – I mean, I, I, I like the whole format. I think it's great, you know. I do, too. And I like the idea that I can keep watching or I can say that's enough for tonight, you know. It's kind of cool. I'm <laughs> in control. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I love all that stuff. It's it's easy though to say you want to keep watching and click that yes, and next thing you know, you're up all night watching a, a stupid series. Well, that's the thing. I it's, uh, you know I watch with my wife, and it's like, are we done? 
No, one more, one more. Go, yeah, all right. That's what my wife always does. Brian, does your wife do that too if you're streaming something? Oh, yeah. And like, she's the bad influence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, uh, we'll move on. So, Portland, not necessarily, like, what was the music scene like in Portland when you guys were getting going? Because I don't see necessarily Portland in the 70s as like a huge, like, musical mecca. No, um, there's very few rock bands that have broke out of Portland. Um, when I was growing up, the cl- it was all cover bands, you know, and there were big cover bands, you know, in town, but you never heard of them. Uh, and uh, I started out playing high school dances and then graduated to clubs. I was I play in clubs before I was old enough to get in. They just made me sit on the stage and yeah. I could play. But it was all cover bands, you know, and every now and then a band would play original music, but it was, you know, it just, no, nobody ever broke out of there. We, we knew, I knew we could. I mean, Tommy Thayer tells me, you know, up to, to this day, thank you. Thank you so much for taking me out of there. Cause I would have never done it. You know, I had the, I, I had the dream. I, I said, we're going to go, go to it. It's not going to come to us here. So uh, yeah, Portland was a weird, weird place to play. But in the seventies, there were a lot of clubs that we could play and into the eighties. And, so we did that. We played four nights a week, four sets a night, playing whatever covers. I mean, I was in a band before Black and Blue. We were called Movie Star. Tommy Thayer was in that. I was the drummer. And I was a singing drummer, but we had a bass player that sang too. And it was all cover tunes. But we were still writing original music constantly. We were recording and writing, and I never, we never stopped that. So a lot of bands were just happy to play that club scene and you know, make, the, you know, make a few dollars, and, and that was what they did. Not me, yeah. Uh, you, I'm a big Warrant guy. I loved Warrant. S- screw anybody who didn't think Warrant was great. Jamie Lane was a great songwriter. Um, you fronted Warrant for a little bit. Is there a particular song that you just really loved singing? Yeah, uh, well, I was in Warrant for about four years, almost four years. Uh, yeah. And I was, when I was in the band, Jamie was still alive, actually. Um, and uh, he's, I think he, caught us saw us once or twice but um yeah Janie is an excellent songwriter i know Janie. he's a, he was great guy he was very talented and i like warrant a lot uh if i didn't like him i wouldn't have joined the band when they asked me but uh yeah well i liked a lot of songs uh, uh i'm trying to think back to uncle tom's cabin was always fun to sing i liked yeah. that one uh I love the Doggy Dog album, which oh, that's I was going to say that's my favorite Warrant record. That's so good. We tried a bunch of songs. We did April twenty thirty one. We did uh, Machine Gun. Oh. We did. Uh, we tried a bunch of songs off that, and they would never go over too well at the shows because you know not enough people knew them. And Eric Turner would always say, "We're pulling it," you know. But what a great album! Uh, I liked a lot of songs. I, I, there was quite a few songs I loved singing with those guys. They got great. There's great songs. You know? Dude, completely talented guy. He he knew how to write hooky stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, and uh, hey, they they're still alive today. With you know, because of all that music, they're still playing and touring. And you know, Robert Mason's a great singer, and they're in good shape. Yeah, '80s was a big time for music videos, and I know uh, Warrant had their their cheesy cherry pie video. What is what do you think is the most cringy music video of the '80s? Oh yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, I love, I love Dawn, but that breaking the chains video is hideous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Dawn. I love you. 
there there is a video that ruined a guy's hot career in the 80s a, Billy Squire. a really good artist rock me tonight by billy squire and the you know what he's like dancing in the room and he tears open his shirt he just looks kind of silly uh but you know what people forget listen to the song it's a cool song it's a great song it's a great he, song he had like, great songs by that video that video is it's i i can't like i feel bad for him because he is a good singer and has good, good material but yeah but you know, i saw him when he was in piper yeah set up at salt lake city to open for billy squire we were going to do a run we were going to farm. this was 80 i don't remember 85 maybe and four even and we were set up the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City is packed. It's 20 minutes before the show, and they say the show is canceled. Canceled. Billy's not playing. And we we never played with him. Uh, he never he didn't play. He was he has a situation. I had to go on the radio station that night and tell everybody that he uh, broke a rib or something, but that wasn't true. I think it was a he was locked in his room, maybe doing drugs or something. I don't know. Something bad was going on. So uh, I mean, he's better now, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, it was really bummer bummer that we didn't get to do that tour the whole tour got canceled <laughs> no my last question for you and the and the lightning or, or the it's not really a lightning round because we expand on our, our we floated our down game. sorry that's my fault <laughs> no 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 we call it a lightning round because it's random questions but it's always like this expansive answers which are cool so my my last question for you here is uh, you know, that was a good story from your time on the road. Give it like if there's one story that really sticks out to you from all your time of performing, you know, start to now. Like, what is it like? What really sticks out in your mind vividly? Uh, there was a there was a time when we uh, we were on our way. This is very early on. The record had been out for a while and we were playing some clubs to get to the Aerosmith tour because it started in Little Rock, Arkansas. So we were in. St. Louis. It's a random place to start an Aerosmith tour. Yeah, 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 it is. Uh, that's where it started. And uh, we were in St. Louis, Missouri, and we were supposed to play a little club called Mississippi Nights. I'll never forget it. And, and we were opening for Alvin Lee. Alvin Lee is from 10 years after. He was actually in Woodstock, you know. It uh, was a weird thing to put us on. But we show up at this club. We've got a bus and a trailer full of gear and we're, we're like ready to go, man. We're going to take on the world. And we show up at this club and this Alvin Lee's guy's got all the stuff taken up the whole stage. And they said, well, if you guys want to play, you go on the down on the dance floor and set up down there. And we just, we just told the club owner, we don't need to do this. Go to hell. We're not like, we're not going to sit up on the floor. Screw you. And the guy said, you know, there's a line of, Kids, a lot of, line of black and blue fans lined up around the club because they want to see us. They got records in their hands and everything, and, and we just felt bad. We said, well, sorry, guys, we'll sign your stuff, but we're not playing. And some kid says, well, we got a band. Uh, 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 he's talking about his band. He said, where, where do you guys rehearse? He goes, in my basement. Let's go. And we went to the kid's basement. We played on their gear. We did our whole black and blue set for all these fans in that kid's basement. No kidding. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we played for him anyway. And it was how so many people cool. did he have down there? Did he have invited? There was probably 30, 40 kids slammed in this kid's basement. That's it. And we did just shitty equipment and we cranked out the whole black and blue set for those. 
<laughs> what an love- amazing night and experience for all those guys and for you guys to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll never forget it. That was awesome. Fuck. Brian, what do you think about that? Oh, that's definitely, definitely, definitely awesome. But uh so where do we go to find out anything that you got going on with yourself or black and blue? What's your social media? Where should we look for you? Black and blue, uh, blackandblue.com still exists. You can go on our Facebook page. It's probably the most up-to-date stuff. There's a couple of black and blue Facebook, black and blue official, black and blue. Just go on Facebook. There's two of them. Uh, I run one and uh, we have a, a, a girl in Kitty that runs, runs the other one with Patrick Young. We have two. I don't know why, but we do. Find either one. It'll tell, tell you what we're doing. Um, and that's pretty much it, man. Uh, we're, we, we don't play a whole lot, but when we get a chance, we will. I think this year, this next year in 2024, it's the 40 year anniversary of the first record. So we may do some club runs or something and play the whole record in its entirety in order, in the right order and everything. We're talking about doing that now. So that might be something to look for. That would be be amazing. I love that. Yeah. Well, 40 years, man, we, we should, we should do that, you know, and of course we'll play other stuff at the end of the night. Uh, Monsters of Rock Cruise 2024 and I think March and uh, that's it, you know, just look for us on Facebook, maybe Twitter. All right. Thank you so much, Jamie St. James. Uh, like I said, my sophomore year of high school and uh, Without Love was the soundtrack and Thank you so much for coming on, man. It means a lot to us. Thank you. I love that. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate it so much. It means everything. Thank you so much to Jamie St. James. That's kind of a dream come true for me. I mean, to get to talk to a guy that, that whose music I love so much and has so much influence on me and was such a great, I keep repeating myself, the soundtrack to the summer of 86 for my sophomore year in high school. It's just, it's so weird. Like, I'll think back to that time and it's like, Obviously, back then, we don't know about the internet or any of this stuff that's coming and podcasts and whatnot. So it was never like in my thought process, I'm going to talk to this guy someday, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's awesome. So what, what did you learn again? Because I told you in the intro like this, it's it's exciting for me because you are so pumped up. You know, we like you said, we're excited about all of our, our artists that we have on here. But this one has personal reverence to you so like what did you find out that you always wanted to know um i felt like i got to hear a little bit more in detail about um how they came to doing became to doing these songs for without love how they picked you know the producers you know listening to lover boy i guess you know and got to hear the story about them they were going to open for elvin lee and ended up you know playing in some dude's basement you know, just uh, it's kind of cool, like just to hear the beginning of, of how that how that all started. And, you know, uh, talk, you know, the them getting Jim Valance on who worked with Brian Adams and, you know, some of it, a lot of it I knew, but it's just I just felt like it was like more in detail and more in depth and, and to, to to talk to Jamie himself to tell me. So it was cool. Well, how about C. Picaro from uh, yeah. Toto? Yeah. And, and that's on, yeah. And I remember like I had without love on cassette, I can probably still find it on CD somewhere. Someone's got it on eBay or something, but you know, when you're reading the liner notes, um, you know, Jim Valens, mm-hmm. Steve Picaro, I think Mike Reno from Loverboy sang on that. Um, you know, when you look when you look on Spotify for Without Love, it doesn't the vast last track on cassette is they covered same old song and dance by Aerosmith. You know, and Bob Rock played on that and some other folks. So I 
I'm always amazed every time I hear what Toto's or those guys from Toto have been involved with records. I, they're certainly as I, you know, we're talking to Jamie, I'm like, they're kind of like the, the, the band of the eighties and like, cause they played on so many records, so many records as the backing band that people don't have no idea. Yeah. I'm sure. Like, yeah, I, you know, just go on Wikipedia and, and read all everybody they they've worked with. It's, and I think it's too, is it's a lot of it, at least for me, like getting older and having more open-minded to stuff. I mean, cause when I was getting into kind of metal in the early eighties, you know, at that time, you know, there was such, you know, I mean that, the, the song Africa, that's total. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I remember like at the same time, like Dexie's midnight runners had come on Eileen and, 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 you know, Steve Miller did abracadabra. I think it was all like around 82, 83 and got out of that kind of pop FM thing into heavy metal, you know? So I was kind of, kind of closed myself off from anything else as i've gotten older i'm like more going yeah man these studio cats you read that you see that so much with studio musicians that are just mm-hmm. spectacular i mean the wrecking crew um obviously the swampers you know and, and i've also become more open to these country pickers you know like yeah like oh my gosh how good are they so yeah that's kind of the same kind of deal for sure so we marked something off your your dream list of Tom yeah. and Jamie St. James yeah, for sure. from Black yeah. and Blue. I love it. I love it. And it's true, man. It, when we, one of us gets pumped up or we get pumped up about a certain guest, it always makes me extra excited to talk to him, too. It really does. It's fun. Now, if we can only get Frank Hannon from Tesla. And Jamie talked about Tesla a little bit, which is cool. Dude, we've talked leads. about other... We've talked to people who thought that Frank Hannon would, you know, we'll, we'll, we're going to make it happen one of these days, Brian. People that we talk to some, seem to think it could happen. So I'm going to keep dreaming. And as we keep dreaming, you guys always remember, Southern Rock is reverent, blues is blood. We'll see you next time. <laughs>
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 